on this episode of the Park Hills Podcast, we're going to run through Revelation 1 through 11 and kind of do a review halfway through the book so we're prepared for the rest. So this is a unique episode. We've never, you know, we have a ton of ideas as to what we want to do with the podcast. And this was one of the ideas that, that popped in our head recently. And so we thought we'd just try it out and see kind of what you thought. Uh, but when we're preaching through a book, especially one as big as Revelation, there's so much going on that sometimes we can miss kind of the overall theme or the concept that's going. So I thought we would just do a quick review through the first 11 chapters and kind of remind you where we've been and build sort of a a basic understanding of, of what's happened so far so that it's fresh in our mind as we move into the second half of the book. So a quick review starts like this. The word revelation is actually in the Greek apocalypse, which means unveiling, which means somebody showing somebody something. And so in revelation, this is the revealing or the, the, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so God wants to show us something about Jesus and in chapter one, we introduced to Jesus all over again and his power and his might and the fact that now that he is alive uh, after the, the crucifixion, resurrection and ascension, the fact that we know that he is in heaven, that he looks a certain way and acts a certain way, we go, he really is the living one. He really is the ancient of days. He really is the, the, the cloud rider that we were waiting for from Daniel. And so all of these things kind of get wrapped into chapter one really quickly and we start to find out that there's a courtroom being set up. Basically, Revelation, the best way to describe it is that the entire world is on trial. And what God does is as he begins the trial, he introduces us to the, the key uh, figure in the story, which is Jesus. And the Father, God, wants to show us about him and about even his own character and how this all fits together. And so as John sees Jesus in chapter 1, we have this idea that a courtroom is being set up, that, that the churches are going to be dealt with first, and then the world is going to be dealt with, and then there's going to be a tremendous amount of trouble and tribulation that the whole world experiences. And as that occurs, then we watch the drama play out, and we start asking really, really good questions. So in chapters 2 and 3, the seven different churches in Asia Minor that are really on a circuit path, uh, these seven are right in order. They're basically on a mail route together. So the, the seven churches are all written to in this letter. So this letter was supposed to go to each of these churches in order, starting with Ephesus, ending up in Laodicea. And each of these churches are along this route. And so it would have been the next spot. So you can imagine someone taking this, this courtroom letter or this you know, uh, filing by John and running it to Ephesus and then running it to Smyrna and, and Pergamum and so on and so forth. And they would have just gone around in the circuit and, and introduced uh, the letter to everybody, every one of them. Now, 
one of the things that we need to think about is this, this whole letter could be indicative of all churches across all of time, or it could just be to these seven individually. And there's a ton of commentators that argue either way. We're not taking a huge stand on that, but we are saying what the churches are told and what they're uh, commended for and what they're scolded for, those are things that we struggle with too. And so we just want to keep that in mind that part of what's happening with these seven churches is uh, uh, when Jesus looks at them and sees what's going on, we can, uh, we can relate in some way. So four of them are commended. Uh, only two of them aren't scolded, which is interesting. But Jesus, what I think is amazing, Jesus knows them all. He knows, he speaks into their context. He speaks into their situation. He knows them specifically and he knows them uniquely. They are known by him. And so Christ is the head of the church. We find that out in Colossians and elsewhere. And so since he's the head of the church, you would want him to know all that's going on in his region. And of course, Jesus does. And so he introduces uh, himself to them and says various things about them that are just amazing and beautiful in chapters two and three. And then chapter four, we, we are given the throne room. We're, we're able to see where this actual court case is happening. It's this massive throne in this amazing room pulling from Exodus 24 imagery and a number of other passages in scripture, whether we're talking about Isaiah 6 or Ezekiel 1. And we went into that with the podcast a little bit. But this this massive throne room is set up and there's these creatures that are worshiping him. You know, there's the four living creatures. We might ask the question, are those seraphim or something else? We don't know. Then there's 24 elders. We had a blog post on that and a podcast that kind of dealt with it a little bit. All of those things are just kind of wrapped into chapter four. But the key part of chapter four and chapter five is worship is what's important. We should be worshiping because he is mighty and he's amazing and he's worth it. And so in chapter five, the lamb comes forward and grabs this scroll. And the scroll has seven different seals on it. And everyone's wanting the scroll to be open, but they don't know if they're able to. And so they're looking for someone who can. And only one who can is, is the lamb. And so the lamb comes forward. And only he is able to open the scroll. And we didn't talk about this a ton, but how did he earn the right to be able to open it? Well, part of the clue is in the fact that he looks as if he'd been slain. So Christ, through his crucifixion and resurrection, he has earned the right to be the one who actually breaks the seals and opens them up. And that's what happens in chapter six. Six of those seals are broken out of the seven. Judgments began and really rulings. If you think about a court case, uh, God is looking at the world and saying, it's time for judgment. It's time for the rulings to be heard. And so he begins to do this and he actually begins to test people to determine their loyalty. And so some of the, the, the things that you see in chapter six that are disturbing, while they're disturbing, yes, they're really there to remind us that there's going to be trial and tr- trouble that we're going to deal with, uh, that as trouble goes through uh, in our life and in the world around us, we need to worship and worship him alone. We need to be the ones that are found worthy uh, because we've chosen to to connect with him and to be honored, uh, to to honor him, and ultimately to be honored by him. As we choose to to go through the testing and to give him praise, he will give us a stamp of approval back. And that's part of what we see in chapter seven. Is there's 144,000 that are sealed. Uh, there's a ton of debate out there whether this is absolutely literal, meaning 144,000 directly. You know, there's some branches of the Christian uh, faith that they are no longer Christians. They're well off into cult land. Uh, but those would say that only 144,000 are going to be sealed. But a lot of us look at it and see there's probably more going on here. It, the fact that the the tribes are are mentioned by name in an in order that has never been mentioned this way, and the fact that there's 12,000 from each, there's tons of sim, uh, symbolism and, and uh, amazing things going on there, that this might just be representative of the entire church. Uh, and the fact that you move into verse 9, 
and it says in 7-9, there's a great multitude that no one could number. And you go, oh, wow. Okay. So is it 144,000? Is it a great multitude? Clearly, these things are, are somewhat connected. But like I said, if you're a, a prophecy nut or someone that loves prophecy, you probably would, would argue with either of those statements. But I'm just kind of throwing out there the grand storyline, reminding you that what happens is God seals his people. And then there's a great multitude from every nation, uh, starting in 7, verse 9, and going on. So then in chapter 8, the seventh seal is opened, and there's a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Okay. And after that silence, seven different trumpets begin uh, to be played. So in chapter 8 and 9, we have six of these trumpets are going to be played. And there's some similarities between the trumpets and the seals. Uh, some have stacked all these things together, the, the trumpets, the seals, and we're going to get to the bowls in a, in a few weeks. But all of those things stacked together, you start to notice there's some similarities and there's some differences between each one of them. But sometimes the first seal and the first trumpet and the first bowl or whatever, they might match up. They might actually have some correlation to one another. And so some have suggested maybe all, you know, all three stacks of seven, so the... Um, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Maybe they're all talking about the same judgment, just in full. And that would be the three idea, right? Holy, holy, holy is, is holier than anything. But the idea that three different types of judgments might just be the, the stacked judgment, judgment, judgment idea. Or it could be that they are completely different things. And if that's the case, then we're talking about destruction galore. I mean, there's just, the whole world is just being raked over the coals, so to speak, that as they face the fire of God, as they face the day of the Lord, they can't stand, which is one of the questions that we were, uh, you know, being asked in those chapters, chapter seven, eight, and nine is who can stand and no one can stand unless they have their, their salvation in Christ, unless they've trusted in his blood to wash over them and cover them and change them. That's the only way that one could stand. And so we, as we see this tremendous amount of destruction and everything else going on, we go, whoa, this is just overwhelming. This is too much. And so the, per, the, the picture of Jesus in chapter one, this person that we, we are following with everything we have, by the end of nine, you're going, whoa, and this is really, wow, this is overwhelming. I don't know what to do. But he's still in charge. And we see that in chapter 10. There's another mighty angel who's a part of this, and then another angel that's standing on the land and the sea. And these are all pulled from different places in Scripture. You could look at Deuteronomy 32 or Daniel 12. But these individuals, these angels, have been holding off the wrath of God or the judgment of God. Or uh, some might even read it that they're holding off the attempts by Satan to just destroy whatever he can possibly destroy. And so it's possible that these individuals have been standing in these places doing these things since the beginning of time. And God now pulls them. He says, you know what? We're done. And he pulls them to him and says it's time to let the world get what it feels like it deserves. And so the world, as it begins to just unravel and do its own thing, everyone starts to freak out. And so the, the question is, okay, who's going to speak to this? And there's a scroll at the end of chapter 10, and this scroll is, is handed to John, and he's told to eat it, and it tastes like honey, and then it, it starts to spoil in his stomach a little bit. And as it spoils in his stomach and turns him, he is overwhelmed by what he has to say, and then he's told to go prophesy and uh, he's supposed to actually go give words to the nations, to many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. And so this idea that in chapter 10, uh, there is, everyone's overwhelmed, and so they need a word of truth. And so what is John going to do? He's going to deliver a word of truth, which leads us then to chapter 11. This word of truth uh, is really overwhelming. Um, there's 42 months of difficulty. 
it seems like this, if you do the math, that would be half of seven years. That would be three and a half years. So many have pointed out this, this seems to correlate to Daniel's time, times, and half a time. It also seems to correlate to the fact that Daniel has one missing week in all of his things. And if you're you know, someone who's into prophecy, you can go back in Daniel and look and find that. But if Daniel's missing week is seven, and we have a seven-year, or at least half of a seven-year period here in chapter 11, you start to wonder, is this a specific time, place, thing going on? Um, yeah, it's, it's very possible. One of the questions we have to ask about chapter 11 is, is this all linear? Is this 42 months happening after chapters 6 through 9, or is this happening during chapter 6 through 9? We are not given a timeline. We are not giving any indication as to what's linear and what's not in this book. So we should be very careful and cautious and humble uh, in how we're going to approach it and what we're going to deal with. But the truth is, no matter what else is going on, whether it's uh, talking about the witnesses or the temple or all the things that are happening in chapter 11, when the seventh trumpet is blown, worship begins again. The 24 elders begin to worship. And God's temple in heaven opens up and, and the people are able, or John specifically is able to see God's temple. And there's flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And so there's this overwhelming thing as we move to the end of chapter 11. Whoa, God is to be honored, to be praised. He is above all things. He is powerful. He is mighty. He deserves worship. He deserves honor. And we should pause and just think that. And so no matter how bad things get in Revelation— and no matter how you read it, how you choose to read it, the, the main point is the same. The first 11 chapters, the same Christ who is overwhelmingly beautiful in chapter 1 is the Christ who's being honored and praised in chapter 11. And he's being praised because he is the Ancient of Days and because he is the Son of Man. He is the one that Daniel was asking for, the cloud rider that was going to fix the entire world. And so Christ has done that through his death and resurrection and his ascension has left us asking the question, when are you going to return? Which is mostly what's covered in the second half of the book. So just to kind of give you a couple more little tidbits that, that people want to know, uh, you'll, you'll notice a lot of things that you see in Revelation uh, talk about seeing, right? So if you were to go through most of the verses, especially where most of the chapter references, or if there's a, uh, you know, a heading in your Bible, it says, you know, right below the heading, I might say something like, I was given this and told to look, or I saw this, I saw that. Remember, the main point of Revelation is an unveiling. And so how do you unveil? You have to see something. You have to actually see it. And so there's the, all these moments in, in Revelation where the key phrase is, and I, then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. But there's five major phrases that sort of anchor the book for us. And those are, after this, I looked, or after this, I saw. And you'll see the first one in chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And then there's a number of things that he sees. Boom, 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 boom. And then you get to chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw. And that's a major shift. There's a major change happening between chapter 6 and chapter 7. So many have pointed out that this after this seems like a major shift. Maybe it's a, a new vision or a new understanding for John. And then you go to 7, 9, and you see the next one. After this, I looked. Now, the next one will happen way later in the book, and we'll get to that in the second half. And then there's one more after this, but in this one it says, after this, I heard. And so, you know, some of the, some of the ways that people have broken down Revelation is they've used the after this I looked or after this I saw, and they've used that as sort of the anchor of maybe this is a new vision, a new concept, a new thing that John is experiencing. And then after that, you'll see all these other, and then I saw, 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 and then you'll see another, 
and after this I saw, or after this I looked. And so that after this, that, that phrase is so unique, and it shows up five times in the book, that people have broken the book down that way. So last thing I'll throw out is this first half of the book, you know, ending with chapter 11, seems to be that God's judgment is being completed, and God is, is fully in charge in some way all the way through chapter 11. Some have proposed that chapter 12 on until, you know, 19 or so, that God actually relinquishes control to someone else. And as he does so, the world doesn't get what it thinks it wants, and it has to be dealt with even more fully. So remember, all of this is, is held within the context of a massive court case, and as the judgment is being given out or dished out to the world, uh, one of the questions is, how are you going to handle the verdict? And that's the question I want to leave us with uh, the, uh, in this episode. How would you handle the verdict? So many of us, you know, when we're caught in a moment of sin, we want to sneak away, we want to hide, we want to, we want to lie, we want to try to get ourselves out of it. The truth is, one of the marks of a Christ follower is humility. And when you're caught, it's an acceptance of that and a willingness to focus on what's important and to do what's right. And so if you were involved in this court case from chapter 1 through chapter 11, so far, you've watched God begin to pull angels out of different parts of the world, angels who have been holding back the winds or holding back, uh, you know, satanic influence or holding back these other things. God has put all these safeguards in place. And as he's slowly pulling them away in chapters 1 through 11, the response of the world is, God, how dare you let these terrible things happen? And they choose not to see that God is gracious and merciful, and he has had all of these safeguards in place for us up until this point. And part of what we need to struggle with is as the verdict is being read, as God is, is addressing our sin and our brokenness, will we stand before him and say, you're right, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a person of unclean deeds. I, I am broken, like, like Isaiah 6. I'm someone who deserves nothing, but I am asking for your mercy. And we know that God is merciful and just, and he will give us mercy. On the other side of that, though, are the people who blame God for everything. They blame God for death. They blame God for destruction. They blame God for all of these things, as opposed to realizing we are the ones who introduced this to the world. And really what God is doing in chapters 1 through 11 is, is pulling some of these safeguards and then allowing the world to see what's really going on. And based on that verdict, what will our response be? So I hope you enjoyed chapter 1 through 11. I'd love to hear your feedback. If this was helpful for you, then great. If it wasn't, then, you know, we'll, we'll not make a ton of these in the future. But if you want more information on Park Hills, go to parkhillschurch.com. And uh, there's tons of resources, whether it's our sermon series in Revelation or whether it's the podcast or other things that we've got going on. So thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.